Isaiah chapter 40. I'm preaching. If you notice up there, it says a midweek Bible study, all right? On some Wednesday evenings, I've been uh, taking a, doing a series on a survey of the scriptures, and my goal is to cover uh, each one of the books of the Bible, uh, some of them, maybe a couple of them on one night, but just kind of a broad overview of each book of the Bible, and, uh, and then preach out of some of the key parts of that, of that book. And really something you can take home with you. I think just getting a good picture of the scripture, it helps you grow from it in your personal walk. So that's the goal of it. But as we have been into it, I've kind of tried to lay some of the groundwork for the scripture. And one of the first things was the inspiration of God's word was the message. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God, of the word of God. And then the second one was the canonicity of scripture. How we know that we have the word of God, the measuring rod by which we know that those books belong in the Bible. And then this past Wednesday night, I was going to preach on the preserved word and why we, why we use the Bible that we use. And, I, and as I was preparing for that, I thought, you know, I think it would be more helpful to preach that to more of our folks. I love Sunday night. Sunday night is a, is, seems more like a family night, does it? Most of us are in one place, and except for those kids, all right? And that lady who leads them, there's trouble there, all right? But, um, but, uh, but no, most of us are here, and I, and I think this is an incredible, important part to know about the Scripture, why we use the Bible that we use and why we use the King James Version. If you know this, there's a lot of them out there. There. Matter of fact, I tried to do some searches to find how many there are, and it's kind of hard to put down a specific number. And there are so many different ones. And if you were to fan their pages, you would find out, although some they sometimes say similar things, they do not always say the same things. And uh, that's, a, that's a dangerous place to be. That's a, a very dangerous place to be. And, but I, I know good folks that don't, that don't hold this position. And I love them and they're good folks. But, uh, but uh, the reality is that there's an importance to being settled on the Word of God. And I want to look at that tonight, if you would. And, and if you would, stand with me and go to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 7, Isaiah 40 and verse 7. And uh, this, the Lord reminds us of so this. I love Isaiah chapter 40. If you, if you want to get excited about Scripture, read Isaiah chapter 40, and it tells what it tells us about God. But in the middle of telling us aloud about God, such as he can measure the heavens in a span, and he has no need of a counselor because he is the counselor, he reminds us something about his word. In verse 7 of chapter 40, he said, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is as grass. Now he reminds us about people, and he says, people come and go like grass. I mean, we're just at the first of August or October, and uh, the seasons have already begun to change, and the leaves start uh, drying out and falling off, and all of that, they change. And God reminds us in this passage of Scripture that people change. As a matter of fact, God even gives us a glimpse of why. It says, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. And boy, God is the timeless one, isn't he? He's the one who stands forever. But in the middle of telling us here about how people come and go and uh, kingdoms rise and fall, he gives us this incredible truth in verse 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The word of our God shall stand forever. There are some things in this world that God has given us that are timeless and unchanging. And one of them, he reminds us tonight, is the scripture. And I'm thankful that in all the changes that a person goes through in life, there's one thing that remains the same, and that is God, and that is His Word. And He highlights that. If you would, let's pray together. Lord, I love you, and I thank you so much for the opportunity to be in church. And I pray tonight that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, I know this may be more of a a different type of Sunday night service, maybe more of a Sunday school lesson than even a Sunday night service, but I pray that you'd use it. Remind us of what we have in the Scripture tonight and what an incredible Word it is because it's your Word. Lord, I love you. Give me wisdom in what I say. Lord, I don't want to say something 
something you would not have me to say. And Lord, I want to be accurate in what is said tonight. So I pray that you'd use me tonight and fill me with your spirit and give us your wisdom. I love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The subject of the scripture is an incredibly important subject. I mean, to be settled on the word of God is, is incredibly important in our life. And uh, the Lord reminds us in Peter that, uh, that as he would talk about, he would talk about the incorruptible seed of the word of God that brings us to a place of salvation. In one place of scripture, he'd say, search the scriptures for in them that you think that you have eternal life. How is it we know that we're saved? How do we come to a place of knowing Christ as our savior? Well, it's by the way of the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. Somebody opened up the pages of Scripture and showed you how you could be saved. The Lord tells the, the preacher to preach the Word, to be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all. And he, and he challenges us to preach the Word of God. In the book of Revelations, he gives warnings to those that would change the Word of God. If you go to the last chapter of it, and he would remind those who would change the words of his prophecy that they stood in danger of the judgment of God. God thinks meddling with his Word is a big deal. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see Satan do that very thing. It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent, this is Satan, said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. The very first sin was accompanied with the questioning of the word of God. The very first sin, as man, as man, took, man took of that tree, was around and centered around Satan bringing doubt to the word of God. Doubt to God's word will always produce a bad product. And having a settled scripture in our hand is, is so important to our life. And how is it that we know that we, we have, how do we know what scripture to use? And if you would read our constitution, you would see that we hold tightly to the King James Version of the Bible. And if you were to uh, teach in a Sunday school class, you would know that would be the expectation that you would use. And, and why do we hold that position? I think the first place to start is the claims of scripture. What does the Bible say about itself? What does the Bible say? That's meant to be the root of our faith, isn't it? Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the what? The word of God. It is to be settled on the scripture. First of all, God reminds us that we do have an inspired word. What does the word inspiration mean? It means God breathed. If you were here a few Wednesday night, you'd hear, heard me speak longer on this, but it means to be God breathed. It means all scripture is, is God breathed. God breathed his words for over a period of 1,500 years to roughly 40 different men of God who wrote and down and gave us the scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures... All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Second Peter chapter 1, 19 through 21 says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Now, what is he talking about a more sure word of prophecy? If I had time, I'd turn there and have you read it. But Peter had just finished how he was an eyewitness account of the transfiguration of the Lord. Peter, James, and John, they stood on the mount, they saw the Lord transfigured, and they were eyewitnesses account. And he said, I'll give you something that is more sure than the fact that I stood there and watched it happen. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. He said, take heed to it. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. 
The Lord reminds us that those holy men of old spake as they were moved of the Holy Ghost. They were just a pen in the hand of a ready writer. Write Peter, write Paul, write David, write Moses, and they would write the scriptures. In Psalm 68, 11, it says, The Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those that published it. The word scripture there, translated as scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, is graph. It literally means the writings, the written writings of God's word. He was telling them, write. It was the literal, literal writings of God's word. God wasn't giving them the thought and telling them to write it. He was giving them the words to write. This is the claim of Scripture. The claim of Scripture and the claim of God is that what you have in your hand is a book like any other, unlike any other book. And by the way, if you're saved tonight, you've got to admit it. Because I've, I've read some books that have had zero impact on my life. But this book has always had an impact on my life. When you read the Bible, you have got to do something with it, don't you? You are either going to be grown closer to the Lord by accepting it and walking in obedience to it, or you will grow further from Him by rejecting it because the Word of God never returns void. It demands something of us. The Bible tells us in Psalms 119, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hidden my heart, in verse 11, that I might not what? sin against thee. Why is it such a powerful word? Because it's not the word of man. It is the word of God given by way of inspiration. God breathed the words and said, write. And these men wrote. It's a verbal word. And uh, it just simply means that it's God breathed. It means the the word for word. He said, write this. Second Samuel 23, two says the spirit of the Lord spake by me. And his word was in my tongue. Samuel said, the spirit of the Lord spake. It was his words, not my words, the very words. 1 Corinthians 2.13, which things also we speak not in words, which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. The Holy Ghost teacheth. In Acts 1 verse 16, men and brethren, the scripture, the writings must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake concerning Judas which was a guide to them that took Jesus, the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. He said, who gave the words? Matter of fact, that word translated as the writings or graphs is used 51 other times in the scripture aside from the one there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He's saying the very words of God. He didn't give the men the thoughts and they said, right. He gave them the words. That is the claim of scripture. That God said, I want you to write and they, they wrote, God reveals in his word that, that it's not just the words, but even the spellings of the words. You know, in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18, it says this, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot is the smallest letter of the Hebrew al- alphabet. And a tittle is the small appendage that differentiates between two similar looking letters in the alphabet. He said not just the words, but the spelling. A jot, the smallest letter, a a tittle, the the appendage of it. In other words, how many of you can tell the difference between the University of Alabama, A, on Brother Don Edmondson's tie, roll tie, and the Atlanta Braves, A. Have you ever seen the difference? All right. The difference is this, is the Alabama A has a mullet. All right. Okay. It has a mullet, right? That's the best way I've ever heard it. All right. It's got that little swoosh at the top, right? And then it comes down and the Alabama A is just an A, right? That little swish is, if you will, it's just an appendage. It differentiates between the two. 
And God is saying in his word, he said, not one jot nor one tittle shall any way pass from the law till all be fulfilled. What is God saying? These are my words, not merely my thoughts, but these are my words. These are the words of God. Even the, the, the use of the singular and plural in Galatians 3 and verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He hath said not and to seeds as many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is in Christ. What was he using? He was using the singular and the plural that God was guarding even that usage that he said, I am giving you the verbal word of God. If you were to sit down to write a paper, you're going to think in words, right? Not pictures, words. Those men sat down to write and God gave them the word of God. The inspired word of God. Write, David. Write, Moses. Write, Peter. Write, Paul. Write, John. And they wrote. He brought things to the remembrance. And he would tell John in John chapter 16, he'd bring all things by way of the Holy Ghost to to the remembrance. And they would sit down and pen. How is it that John could write more than likely 60 to 70 years after the events that took place in the book of John and write them with accuracy? How could he do that? Is it a man-based work? If I, if I went to Brother, Brother Morrison and asked him, would you reiterate some things and some events with complete accuracy that took place 70 years ago? We would, we would question the accuracy of it. Now, I would never question. No, I'm teasing. But we would, we would say, is he going from a human perspective going to get the details right? And the answer is no. We would have a hard time with last week. But what does God tell us in John chapter 16? He said, he'll bring all things to your remembrance. John could put down and record the words of John chapter 13, 14, and 15, and 16, and the Lord's Prayer in John chapter 17. Why? Because the Holy Spirit of God gave him the word to write. To the jot and the tittle. He gave them his word. It is the inspired, if you will, verbal, plenary. It just means full. We would, we would say that we hold to the plenary verbal inspiration of God's word. It means full. Matthew 4 and verse 4 says, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. By how many words? Every, every word. Did he say a few? Did he say some? Did he say it'll contain? No, he said every word of God. He would say in in this verse, he would say in Proverbs 35, every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, the writings is given by the inspiration of God, all of it. He said it is full. It is every word. It is the written, verbal, inspired word of God. It's an incredible book that you hold in your hand tonight. I'm reminded of John when John would say the worlds could not contain. He said, there's so many other things that I could write, but these are written that ye might believe. In other words, John said, there are so many other things that could have been written, but these are the word that God gave me that ye might believe. Do you know God could have said many other things, but this is what he said to you because this is what you needed. Amen. It's a book unlike any other book. It is his words to you and I. That when God said, this is what my people need, he leaned over a man and said, write. And they wrote. The inspired, preserved word of God. It is a preserved word. I just read the verses, but I'll read it again. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass, the grass withereth, and the flower fadeth. But the word of our God shall stand for how long? Forever. 
forever. In Matthew 24, 35, the Lord would say, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What words shall not pass away was he speaking of? His inspired, preserved, verbal word to the jot and to the tittle. It will not pass away. 1 Peter 1, 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. He said, being born again, your salvation hinges upon a preserved, inspired word of God, friend. Being born again, not of the corruptible seed, but of the incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Luke 16, 17, and it, as, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. It is easier. It is easier. Matthew 5, 18, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The Roman emperor Diocletian in A.D. 245, lived from 245 A.D. to 313, decreed in A.D. 303 that every Bible should be destroyed, every copy of God's word. He had been told that if he could destroy the Bible, he would destroy Christianity. Christians are people of the book, it was said. Feeling he had succeeded, Diocletian raised a column with the inscription in Latin that meant the name of the Christian is extinguished. Yet Constantine succeeded him, and the year of A.D. 312 replaced the pagan symbols with the symbol of the cross. This change took place in less than 10 years. The world has tried to stamp out the scripture that you hold in your hand, and yet somehow God is bigger than the world. The world and devil has tried to water it down, diminish it, and reduce it. And yet somehow, God has continued to inspire his word. He has given to us an inspired word of God. So this leaves us, if these things be true, then we must ask ourselves the question, where is his word? That's the question that everybody has to answer. Is that if God said he inspired his word, and it's a verbal word, and it's in every word, and he has preserved his word from one generation to another, the question that everybody must ask is, and it's a good question to ask, where is it? Is that not the question that, that, that seems to make sense? That here is the God of heaven who's spoken in his word and said, I have written my word. I have given men the very words of God. I have given them in every word and and it's every word and it's a full word. And I'm promising you this, Christian, you will have it forever. That's a promise. Then I must ask myself this question. Where is it? Where is it? It's got to be here somewhere. Has God ever told a lie? Has he ever failed? Then I must ask him, where is it? And in reality, there's two texts for the scripture that we find in the word of God. Matter of fact, you could take tonight, and I almost went to the bookstore tonight and bought a whole bunch of different versions in this week and stacked some here and then the Bible, then the the King James here and all the others here. Because in reality, there's two texts from which they come. You would stack here every modern day version and you would put the, the King James version to this side right here. And they would be two separate texts from which they would come. And I, I'm going to come to those. And the first thing we see in the text of the scripture is the original autographs and manuscripts. An autograph would be the actual ones that Moses would have sat down, whether it was on stone or 
folks that would write on clay tablets, tablets or, or sheepskin and uh, various things or leather scrolls. And the, the autographs would be the actual words that Moses would begin to write. And as he wrote Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was out form and void. And, and, and we would read those and we would see that. But, but nobody has the original ones for good reason. Things in this life wear out. But there are manuscripts, and I'm going to go specifically to the New Testament. There are manuscripts for it, and manuscripts are the, the handwritten copies. The original writings called autographs are written on stone, clay tablets, and, and various other things. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew and a few portions in Aramaic, and the New Testament in Greek, the common language of the Roman Empire. No original autographs exist today, but hand copies called manuscripts were carefully made from the autographs. The Greek manuscripts were circulated among churches in different countries. It was a letter by letter. They would copy the word down letter for letter. They didn't go word for word. Anybody ever write out a Bible verse before? And you're writing out for memorization, and you're going word for word. The, the. And you're going back and forth, and you're writing out for accuracy. They didn't go word for word. They went letter for letter. And so they looked letter, and we know this from, from history. They went letter, wrote a letter, letter to letter. And then they would go through that page as they wrote letter for letter and, and they would actually number the words and number the letters so that they could go back later and even see if they came out word for word numerically correct. And if they didn't, they knew there was an error. Matter of fact, if there was one error on a page of scripture, they threw it out. When a book was completed, if they found an error, they threw it out and they started all over again. They didn't start with a page. They threw out the whole thing and started back over again. And they would write letter for letter, word for word, copying each one of those over page after page after page. And, and, and they would write out the scripture and, and go from, from one generation to another as we gathered the word of God. And it's an amazing thing. There's a thousand years gap between the Isaiah scrolls found in 1947 there at the Dead Sea and, and, the, and the copy that we, the, the earliest copy that we had. And yet as they compared them, they were, they were complete, they were accurate. As they compared them, there was an accuracy there because God was preserving his word. And so we have the traditional or received text. That is the text from which if you hold a King James Bible tonight, that, that Greek text from which we gain our King James Bible came from the traditional or the received text. Today, there are about 5,040 ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts that exist. They are grouped by families. They're the Byzantine or majority text, which we use. There's the Alexandrian text, which is not used. It was not a part of that family. And there's the Western uh, text. No ancient document has the manuscript support that begins to compare with the New Testament. In other words, if you could go to some of the oldest books of history, none of them have the, 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 uh, the number of copies to compare to. You could take the works of old of Plato. You could take all of those works that, that we would see that the world accepts without question. And I should have bring, brought a list of them. There's a video I wish I had put up here to play, but for time's sake, I couldn't. But the, the number of copies that they have that reinforce the Bible that you have is insurmountable to any other evidence you'll find for any ancient book or manuscript, any, by far. And yet, folks like to bring question to the New Testament, yet they don't bring any question to those books. And yet they, they, they compare it. And so we would use the text from which you have that Bible you hold tonight is the traditional or received text, the Texas Receptus. And then you have the Westcott and Hort text. Two Englishmen, B.F. Westcott and F.J.A. Hort, led the effort to compile a new Greek New Testament. 
they chose not to use the Byzantine traditional text. Now that text, the Byzantine one from which you have this one, is the line. Nobody has the original autographs, but you can follow a line of manuscripts that goes all the way through the history like a family tree. How many of you know who your grandparents are? You remember your great-grandparents, all right? Now, maybe some of you do. I remember my great-grandma Clark, all right? But you could go back through the manuscripts that we have in a long family tree that the church and Christians have used for the, through the Scripture like a family tree, and you can follow that text back through the thousands of years, specifically in the New Testament, that Greek traditional text that the early churches would use coming out of Antioch, that Christian after Christian after Christian would use, and you can follow it like a family tree, and that is the, 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 that line of text that we would use. But in the 1800s, two fellows came along named Westcott and Hort, and they chose a different one. They told, chose primarily two texts. One was found in a monastery near Mount Sinai, and the other one was found in the, in the Vatican. Uh, when, the old, when the old scribes would, would write the scripture, and they would do that word for word, when there was an old copy of the word of God found that maybe through age, anybody have an old Bible that's starting to fall apart upon you? And uh, maybe there's a page or two missing? When they would find those, those scripts, when they would have those due to age or whatever it was, or they would take those, and, and, I, and I put the name down here, but I can't pronounce it. It's a Hebrew word. They would put them in a cupboard, and they would be saved, all right? Though they were inaccurate, they put them out of service because of their inaccuracy, things missing, or, or maybe they weren't copied right. Well, the, the, the one for the, the Sinai text and the one found at the Vatican were in those type of places. They had been discarded, but yet... In the mid-1800s, Westcott and Hort went in and they chose an eclectic method and they went pick and chose from different manuscripts and they compiled a, Greek, a new Greek text called the Westcott and Hort. Now it's called uh, uh, Nestle Aland or something of that nature, various uh, than that. But Erasmus was the one who, in 1546, took many of those manuscripts and compiled the one which we use today and, and others that God would use to give us the Tectus Receptus. And they began to use a whole different text in the 1800s. And every new version, every new modern version outside the King James Version was based off of those texts. So when you go to the, when you go to the, the bookstore and you're seeing uh, the ESV, the New Living Translation, you're seeing the NIV and you're seeing those, those came from that line of text. When you pick up your, your King James Version, those came from a line of text that goes back through the ages of the church. And every generation used those texts to give them the word of God. Now, there's a problem because God promised to preserve his word. Did he not? So let me ask you, if those texts were formulated in the 17, in 1800s, what were they using in the 1700s, the 1600s, the 1500s, the 1400s? Let's just go back. But there's a Greek line that God has used to give us the scripture. It's a family tree that goes back through the ages of the church that you can follow that this was based off. So there is a... There is a text issue. The Westcott and Horde or the Nestle line differs with one another's in the gospel alone over 3,000 times. That text disagrees with itself 3,000 times in the gospels alone. And matter of fact, there are portions of scripture completely missing from that text. Uh, and maybe that's the reason they had pulled those texts out of something that at the people at the time said, this is to be discarded. It's worn by age. O oldest doesn't mean necessarily mean the best because it's missing parts. It was set aside. It was discarded. And yet they would take that. And so when you, when you pick up your Bible, and, and what I would say is when you have your King James Bible here and you have these other versions here, you're dealing with two separate texts. 
two separate family lines, and the one is, is a stump, all right? It comes around around the 1800s, all right? And they're pulling from some older texts, but two primarily, the, the one, and they, and they differ with one over 3,000 times, and then that Textus Receptus that goes all the way back through the line of the church and all the way back into those Greek manuscripts. So there's, there's two different texts uh, that are used. The, the next thing we see is the translation of the Scriptures, the translation of the Scriptures, and so when you choose your Bible, you have to make a decision. Which text is the one of accuracy? Which one is the one of accuracy? Number two, the second problem is the manner of translation. Now let me ask you, if, if I turn to, anybody speak Spanish in here? Where's Miss Liz? All right, Miss Liz, Brother Reuben, all right. If I turned to you and I, and I said, I want you to interpret for me tonight, I would ask Brother Reuben to interpret for Miss Liz, all right. I know she's got some, all right. Brother Reuben, and I, and I would speak some words, and, and he would translate those words. He would try to, to translate word, those words as best as he could, word for word, from one language to the other, with the recognition that sometimes those words may not be the exact same. There may be another need for an extra word because it, it's not a direct translation. You have to have that translation. Well, when you translate, when they translated the the King James Bible, when those folks write that, they use what is called formal equivalence. Formal equivalence is this: the the it is a word for word translation. The goal is to stay as close to the original text as possible. The translation would preserve the the grammatic structure, the grammatical structure, the vocabulary, and the syntax, and the source. Those fellows, as they sat down, said, this is what it says in Greek. How do I write that in English? Does that make sense? This is what it says in Greek. This is how do I write that. Matter of fact, in your King James Bible that you hold today, many folks say, well, uh, that was the common language of those folks at the day. It's not the common language of today, and that's not the case. When they wrote the English version, they weren't using necessarily words that day that man used in their everyday language. What they were using was best word for best word. In other words, propitiation may not have been the common usage, but it was the best English word to translate it. So they went word for word. What is the best word? And and there's an incredible importance of that because one of the things people use today is they try to say, we need a different version to make it easier easier to understand. The problem with that is when you make a word easier, it loses meaning. Right? It loses meaning. For instance, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the word charity is used. Many folks will try to swap that out with the word love. But charity does mean love, but it's, it's something different from that. It's, it's, it's love in action. It's love being put to purpose. Charity suffered long and it's kind. and it, It's very purposeful in its word. Where you, we use love today and it can speak to an emotion. But that word there speaks directly to a love that is producing and is in action. And it may be easier for you to say, oh, love. But the reality is you reduce meaning when you swap out the word. And, uh, and so what they did is rather than try to reduce meaning and say, well, I'm going to try to write it in a way that is down here for my K-5 student, right? No, they said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write best word for best word because of something. God said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Every word matters to God. Not one jot or any, or any tittle shall in any ways pass from the law. Every jot, every tittle matters to God. So when, we, when we're going to translate this from the Greek into the, into the English, let's go word for word, best word for best word, formal equivalence. Now here's the problem with our modern, the modern translations. They use something called dynamic equivalence. 
That, is, that means this. It allows the translator great freedom to change the text, either by what he thinks the original writer must have meant or how he thinks it should be worded to fit today's culture. In other words, what did the original writer mean and how do I best and, and how do I word this to fit today's culture? That's why it seems to be the newer and newer the translation, the translation of the scripture, it seems to just get crazy. You ever pick one of them up and you're just like, wow, what happened here? But they use that, that difference in it. Isaiah, there's a big problem with this because Isaiah 55, 8 says this and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You get yourself in big trouble trying to interpret the thought of an almighty God. But I can take his word. I may not, I may not always know what God is doing, but I can always trust his word. This, this matters so much as in, in everyday living. It mattered much to me when we lost Silas. S- Philippians said this. It, it says, in everything give thanks. Or, or it spoke there of a peace that passeth. I don't have time to go back at that passeth understanding. The word passeth means it's, it's, uh, it's something that God can give a peace, specifically through pray- prayer, that is even hard to explain, Right? But even more than that, that word passeth means supreme to understanding. In other words, there's a peace that God can provide that is even better than my understanding why he did it. How many of you have ever had something happen in your life you have no clue why God did it? Maybe later we'll get it. But you had a promise in his word. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And I could say, I don't know what God is doing, but I know he's promised to do something with it. See, even the writers, even the fellows who sat down and wrote, they didn't understand everything they wrote. Isaiah would write tremendous passages of scripture on the crucifixion of our Lord and what he would go through. And yet the, the, death, the, the death by crucifixion wasn't even in existence when Isaiah wrote. When Psalm set, Psalms 22 and other passages of scripture that, that wrote about the crucifixion, the death by crucifixion wasn't even into existence. Daniel would write prophecies concerning what was to come, and he would have no clue other than to write the prophecy. He could not, matter of fact, in multiple occasions through scriptures, the original writers that God would use would even profess the fact that they did not understand all that God was doing. But they did have his word. And so when you pick up those translations, why do they vary so much? Why can you go to the store, pick those up, and see them differ with themselves on multiple divications? Why is there so much wording? Because of the, the way they translated the word. They did not go for a word for word. They tried to interpret the thought of God rather than simply translating the word of God. And then they tried to say, well, how does it best fit our culture? And the problem is, friend, this book transcends culture. Cultures come and go. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. You don't write God's word based upon the culture. You write God's word based upon what God has said. And so there's the problem of the text and there is the problem of translation and and the necessity for a formal. And so when you pick this up, you say, preacher, why do we use this this King James Version? Well, you, you start with what has God said about his word? 
And it brings me to a place of recognizing there is an inspired word of God. And it's a jot and a tittle word. It's, it's every word. It's, it's even the singular and the plural that he would speak of. It's the full word of God. And he gave us this promise that he would preserve it. So my question that I must ask is, okay, Lord, if you've promised it, then where is it at? And so we'll go to those texts that we have. Where is this family tree of texts? Boy, and there's this one that you can trace through the line of church history. And it's the one that that book, if you have a King James Bible in your hand, was based off of. If you have a modern translation not based off of that, it does not contain that. It is a different text. Assembled in the 1800s. And really, even at its time, its reliability was questioned because of how many times it disagreed with itself. And yet in our culture today, it has been used over and over again uh, to translate the scripture. And this brings about, we see this, the confusion caused by these things. There's confusion. The first confusion we see is the scripture that is missing. If you were to pick up your... NIV and you were to look for Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20, one of two things would happen. It would either not be there or there would be a footnote next to it that says this. The most reliable early manuscripts omit Mark 16, 19 through 20. And, and that, that just, those passages just simply contain the account of the resurrection, by the way. What they fail to make clear is that out of approximately 5,487 Greek manuscripts available to the scholars, of those that contain Mark, only three manuscripts omit this passage. Friend, I don't know about you, but if I picked up that many copies and I found one that was missing a block containing the resurrection, I would discard it in a heartbeat. I would think that if God was going to preserve anything, he would preserve the account of his resurrection. And that is, that is the reason we're here. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, and, and Paul would make it very clear, if he didn't rise again, then go home. And it's missing it. It's completely missing it. Or they would give it there, but they would give that, that confusion to say, it's, well, it's not there. You would also find in some of those other texts that John chapter 7, verses 53 through chapter 8, verse 11 are missing. And this is the account of the woman taken in adultery. You would also find in those texts, those ones that off our modern translations are based, John 5, 3, and 4 are missing. This is the account of the angel troubling the water. If you would take your Bible, go to Acts chapter 8, verse 36, and turn there with me real quick. And John, Acts chapter 8 and verse 36. In Acts chapter 8, verse 36. I'll begin to read, and you read along with me if you would, and see where I go wrong. I'll wait till I hear pages stop turning. It says here in Acts chapter 8, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look here is water. What, what can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. Outside of the abuse on the actual wording of the scripture, did anybody notice something pretty important missing? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I, I don't know about you, but if I saw that missing from my Bible, that would bother me. That would bother me. What do, hey, why can't I be baptized? Well, you've got to believe with all thine heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. 
And they'll say, well, that's missing some of the, some of the older scriptures. Not the bulk, friend, not the right text, friend. Not if you're grabbing a hold of the right text line. You're going to find that a, a quite prominent place. Now, if you're grabbing a hold upon another line, you're going to find some pretty incredible things missing from the Word of God. And, uh, and you see the confusion caused. By the way, even if the Bible, and you'll find this in many of the verses, not just the NIV, but all of those based off of those texts, you're going to find that. Or you're going to find footnotes along the side of it that will stick them there, but they'll bring some footnote that says, now, you know what? This may not be God's Word. This may not be God's Word. God forbid that I ever hand that to my son. God forbid that we as a church would ever hand that to another generation. Why? It it undermines. It undermines the doctrines of God's word. We see scripture abused as a result. Would you look up John chapter 1 and verse 18 in your Bible? John chapter 1 and verse 18. And I'm just going to go to a few. I could go on all night with these, but but I'm just going to cover a few. John chapter 1 and verse 18. If you've got it in your King James Version, it says this, No man hath seen God at any time. The only what? Begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. If you were to have an ESV tonight, you would see these words, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is the Father's side. He has made, known, made him known. Now, there's a problem there. There's a word, there's a rearrangement of words, but specifically there's a word missing. The word begotten. That flesh-born Son of God. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is in the Father's side, doesn't even necessarily speak to his Son. If, if you were to read the NIV, it says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son. Now hold up a second. To as many as received him, to them gave you the power to become the what? The sons of God. You lost your sonship in that moment. You lost it. Who is himself God. That New Living Translation, no one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God, he is near the Father's heart. The Message Bible, claiming to be a paraphrase of the Scripture, we all live off of his generous abundance, gift after gift after gift. We got the basics from Moses and then his exuberant giving and receiving. I I won't even go on there. But the danger of the Scripture, the danger of trying to, rather than word from word, is very serious. The word begotten goes to the virgin birth of Christ. You and I came into this world, friend, sinners by birth. By nature. Our sin proved our sinful condition. So God worked a marvelous miracle. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It was fulfilled in the scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ was begotten, born of the flesh of a virgin without a sin nature. He came into this world. He is the only begotten son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, the virgin born son of God. Now, you and I weren't begotten of the flesh. We were born of the spirit. That's how we became a child of God. But God, Jesus was always God's son. And he was the only one begotten of the flesh. And he was a sinless savior. See, I don't see it as a big deal, but it's, it's the doctrines... It's probably why God said every word matters to God. John 3.16 has the same problem. They remove the word begotten. You'll see it in the NIV, the ESV, the New Living Translation, and the Message Bible. God forbid, again, this is how much God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only Son. And this is why, so that no one need be destroyed by believing in Him. Anyone can have a whole and lasting life. Whole and lasting life. My Bible says an everlasting life. Whole, whole and lasting, nothing, friend. It's everlasting. Amen. 
you cannot change the Word of God. And Matthew chapter 18 and verse 11, if you would, um, well, I'll read it. And the reason I'm going to read it for you is because it's only found in your King James Bible. It's another one from which they omit it. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. You won't find it in your ESV. You won't find it in your NIV. You won't find it in the New Living Translation. You won't find it. And I'm just quoting the more well-known translations. You won't find it there. I don't know. I have somewhat of a problem with that. Mark chapter 13, verse 33. If you'd look that one up. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 33. And we'll all read it aloud together if you would. Matthew 13, 33. When you find it. It says this in Mark chapter 13, 33. Read with me. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. Take ye heed, watch and what? Pray. Here it is in the NIV. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. The ESV. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Reminds me of what I used to tell my brothers. Be on your guard. Right? Right before you entered into a sword fight. New Living Translation. And since you don't know when the time will come, be on guard. Stay alert. The Message Bible. So keep a sharp lookout for you don't know the timetable. <laughs> I don't know. They're leaving out something. Watch and what? Pray. I don't care how much you are on your guard. If you're not praying, you're in trouble. I would say that one's a pretty key ingredient to the Christian life. Call on him. Pray. Seek his face. Over and over again, he reiterates it. And yet those, whether they're due to two things that these things are changed and left out, text and translation. Some of them it's a text issue. The wording is wrong. Many times it's a translation issue. Rather than saying, what does it say and how do I best translate it? They're saying, what has he thought and what is the best for our culture? And therein lies a problem. You've taken God's word into your hand. Rather than say, dear Lord God, what does your word say? There is a problem with it. There is a problem with it. What is this, this, these problems? You see, the, the confusion that's caused is there's scripture missing, there's scripture abused, but there's also scripture that is doubted. You know what all of these things do is they produce a doubt in God's word. You know when many of the translations came on? Matter of fact, all the newer translations, the 1900s. I would ask you, friend, would you say... The church has been better off as a whole or worse off. Better or worse? Friend, could it be tied a little bit to people's view of the Bible? Could it be tied a little bit to that? I don't know about you, but whether you openly admit it or whether it's a subconscious, when you read a, you're reading your Bible and you look to the footnote and it says, well, you know, that may not be there. That may not be there. It brings question to my mind. Do I have the Bible? And if this one may be missing, what else is missing? Where is it at? What's happened here? When you can go to the bookstore, and it's no wonder I think so many times the world's got to look at us like we're crazy. Because they can go to the bookstore and go, this one, this one, this one, this one, and this one. And they can pick them up and see them see such different things. And friend, I've stuck to some of the more common ones. If you get to even some of the more of them, wow. It's crazy. 
And the world, it brings doubt to God's word. And friend, if you don't, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the what? The word of God. What is it that Satan did to Eve? He, he brought doubt to her mind concerning God's word. And when she doubted, she fell. And they doubted God's word. And, and we see that happening. There, there are so many things. You know, I think even in the 1900s, here's some things. If Do you know there's economic factors? Do you know what the best-selling all-time book in the world is? The Bible. The Bible. There's money to be made in it. Why would you feel that so many different folks make so many different translations and they're all coming out with it? Ken Taylor wrote his version of the Bible, the Living Translation, and sold 23 million copies. 23 million copies. He founded afterward the Tyndale House Publishing. Friend, there's profit in it. It is a guaranteed thing that you can write yourself a new translation and get some well-known evangelical or some well-known person to endorse it. You are going to make money and loads of it. Matter of fact, the new, the NIV was written by a small, at that time, small publisher, Zondervan Publishing. Yeah, they have sold so many copies that the publishing arm has grown and it's a part of HarperCollins now and it's owned by Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful thing? And you could go down through it. Friend, there is profit to be made. There is money to be made. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to go into the intentions of every man's heart when they do it. But I would say the devil's not blind to it. I would say not. And it produces doubt. I'll go to this again. What hath God said? What did he say? Over 3,000 times in your Old Testament, he said, thus saith the Lord, or some similar phrase. What did he say? He said, this is my word. All scripture is given by the inspiration of it's God breathed. It's the written words. It is, uh, it is a full word. It's a plenary verbal word. And he said, this is what I've given you, a word for word word. And he said this, I will preserve it. So the question is, where is it? You can follow that Greek text. And that King James Bible you hold in your hand tonight is based off of that text. And that King James Bible, when they translated it, they said word for word. How do we translate this? Now, if you're holding an NIV in your hand, an ESV, or many of the others, some of them get a little closer to this one than others. They're going formal or dynamic equivalents. What did he say? How do I apply it to our culture? That is a big time problem. Because that is where you get in the way of God's plan. That is where you get in the way of God's plan. And somewhere... If, God, if what God has said is true, then there's got to be a copy that I can hold. And I would say, here it lies. Here it lies. I have it in my hand. And I have something that when the world changes and my life gets turned upside down, there's something to hold to. There's a timeless book by a timeless God who's given me a reliable word and I can hold it in my hand and I can read its pages. You say, I just don't see how God could do that through the years. Then go home tonight, set your Bible on the shelf and walk away. Because if he can't preserve his word, he cannot preserve your soul. 
If God cannot preserve his word, he cannot preserve your soul, friend. If he does not have the power to make sure that you have a word, the word of God in your hand, then he does not have the power to seal you to the day of redemption. And friend, if he cannot preserve his word, then he couldn't, by a word, speak this world into existence. And if he cannot preserve his word, friend, then he cannot, by a word, uphold all things by his power. And if he cannot preserve his word, then friend, we don't really know that anything he said is coming is truly coming. Everything is in doubt. But my God is bigger than that. We have a faithful God who cannot lie, who has given me a preserved word, an inspired word, that I can follow it like a family tree and say, this is the text that God has given me. This is the way it was translated, and God has preserved his word into my hand today. There's this other line. It might have contained some, but it's got some pretty big problems. It's got some problems that, that just discredit it. Scripture that is missing. And these folks that have translated it, friend, you know, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but if you're going to copyright something such as this, you know, your King James Bible, no, no copyright. But if you're going to copyright another something like this, it's got to be a good bit different just to copyright it. Like you can't take it and go word for word and copyright it. You have to change it. So when those folks came up with their own translation, they had to change it or they could not copyright it. Now, friend, that's a problem. Because they looked at God's word and said, now let's change it. Let's interpret his thoughts and apply it to our culture. Let's grab this text that's only been compiled since the 1800s that's got massive errors in it. And then let's write according to what we think. Rather than saying, didn't God say he preserved it? Didn't God say it would be in every word, verbal word? Didn't he say that he would preserve it for me? Now, where is it? Well, there's this line, 5,000 and some texts, that go back through the ages of the church that they've written their Bibles on and translated from and gone to time after time after time. And here we hold it in our hand today, translated from that into King James. No, they found another one in the 1800s. That even they doubted it at the time, and then they tried their translations and methods. And I would tell you, friend, tonight, I'm not saying an awful... I, I know good people that use other translations. I know good people on their way to glory that use other translations. But I'm going to tell you, if you want God's word, you better go to this book. And if you want to hand something to your children that is reliable, you better go to that one. Because one day your child will pick up the word of God and see a footnote. If Well, I just use that word loosely. One day someone will pull up that copy and they'll read that footnote. My dad told me I had the reliable word of God, but this verse says these words were not included. Maybe I don't. Maybe I don't. And that is a dangerous place for the church to be, where you cannot trust the Bible that everything is based upon. And so I would tell you this, if you've got this book and it's the word of God, read it, study it, Meditate upon it, memorize it, live it, and apply it. It is God's word for you and I. Let's pray together. Lord, I love you and I thank you for the scripture. Lord, I'm so thankful that you've given us the promise of your word that, or the grass withereth, the flower fadeth. This world sure changes, but 
your word will stand forever. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, thankful that you, I'm so thankful that you've given me a word that I can trust today as other generations of Christians have had a word that they could trust. I'm thankful for it. Lord, I pray that, Lord, I don't often speak on this subject. I, I believe in using it more than anything. It's an offensive weapon. It's the sword of the spirit. But Lord, I, I pray that we would cling to the scripture, that our families, would, we would cling to the word of God and we would make it prominent in our homes and our families and prominent in our life. Lord, we live by it and apply it. Heads bowed and eyes closed. I know it's a different type of message, but I'm a preacher. It wouldn't be right for me not to ask it. Could I ask you this? How many know you're saved and on your way to heaven? That's a settled thing for you. I haven't spoken much about it. You said, preacher, I know that I'm saved on my way to heaven. You raise your hand as just a testimony between you and I and the Lord. You put your hand down. Is everybody here tonight? Maybe someone's come tonight unsure about it. They knew it when they walked in. They weren't sure about eternity. But you said, preacher, I need to know about heaven. I need to know about my Lord. And I've, I've heard much about his word but I need to know him. If there's anybody like that, would you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Let me ask you this then, Christian. How many would say, I, I don't, how may the Lord, it's a different type of message, but maybe the Lord has spoken to you, just reminding you of that book that you hold in your hand and what God has done to give it to you. But you'd say, hey, preacher, the Lord has spoken to my heart this evening. Would you raise your hand as a testimony? Would you stand with me as the pianist begins to play? However, God may have spoken to your heart and a different type of message, not the normal, but why don't you just take a moment and Thank him for the scriptures that you have in your hand this evening. But as God has spoken to your heart, do business with the Lord.